You're listening to KOOP Hornsby Austin 91.7 FM and on the web at koop.org. Welcome to Issues for Your Tissues, the definitive discourse on reproductive health and well-being with your host, Katie Vitale. The views and opinions expressed on Issues for Your Tissues may not necessarily reflect those of Co-op, its board of directors, or anyone else anywhere else. The information offered is not a substitute for the advice of a licensed medical professional, which I am not. Thanks for tuning in to Issues for Your Tissues. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I'm Katie Vitale, your host. Uh, with you, as always, on a Thursday night. You could be tuned in at 91.7 FM if you're lucky enough to be in Austin. Or you could be tuned in at KOOP if you are lucky enough to be living in another part of the world right now. Which, I guess, it, some parts of the world might be... Anyhow, you guys, let's not get into that. Um, you also might be listening in the future. Future, future, future. It's the future is the podcast, uh, which is available to you at iTunes or at the Issues for Your Tissues blog uh, as an MP3 if you don't like if you're a non-Apple person. So uh, we've got we've got plenty of issues uh, wherever you want and whenever you want, really on demand issues on demand. Uh, so you can search for it by going to Google and typing in Issues for Your Tissues, or you can go to the co-op webpage and link over to the issues for your tissues page where all of those resources are available to you. So um, please, if you are interested at all 
in the content of the show. Uh, look for it afterwards there. I'm very excited to have some guests with me tonight to talk to you about the current state of things. It seems like every week it's it's a whole different story, and none of these stories are really ones I want to be listening to or talking about uh, because it seems to bring me down. Anyhow, uh, to counter that, I, I want to bring you good information and more um, more of the other the the, the forward thinking progressive, positive side of things with my guest, Amy Arambide. Amy is a longtime uh, reproductive justice. I'm going to just say, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that word on the air. Uh, um, Powerhouse, we'll say that. Oh, hold on. Sorry, there you go. Uh, I think we could go with heroin, champion, um, warrior. Yeah, all those, all those are accurate. Those. Yeah, so I'm just going to read to you a little bit um, because she has an illustrious background and I wouldn't want to miss any part of it. Uh, you, can, you can find a- Amy working her day job at the Public Leadership Institute. They are online. Um, Public Leadership Institute, no, yeah, publicleadershipinstitute.org. Uh, and Amy's worked in reproductive rights and justice movement for the majority of her professional career while studying philosophy at the University of Texas. Amy interned at NARAL Pro Choice Texas, where I met her. Uh, years she, ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only like, we don't have to say. <laughs> she worked as a health educator at Texas Planned Parenthood after graduation. Uh, during law school, she served as a legal intern at the Center for Reproductive Rights Global Program and the New York Civil Liberties Union Reproductive Rights Project. After graduating from New York Law School, she worked as the Director of Public Affairs at NARAL Pro-Choice Texas. Uh, she was a legal fellow at RH Reality Check, now Rewire News, and the Director of Public Policy and Advocacy at the Texas Women's Healthcare Coalition, and she currently serves as the co-president of Fund Texas Choice, which is a practical support abortion fund. And she's on the advisory council of ReproAction. Hold on, taking a breath. A new direct action group forming to increase access to abortion and advance reproductive justice. Amy is the co-editor of A Playbook for Abortion Rights. So, Amy, I feel like that was a lot, but it doesn't cover, it doesn't begin to cover everything that you do on a day-to-day for all the ladies. So first, thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you, can you tell listeners a little bit about uh, what got you started in this or how you came to decide this is what I need to be doing? Uh, sure. So um, my dad was an abortion provider in San Antonio, and then he traveled once every other week to Corpus Christi and once every other week to Laredo to perform abortions. And at a young age, one of my classmates came up to me. Um, I'd always known he was an OBGYN. He had delivered me. and um, Your dad delivered you? He did. I was a C-section baby, so I I don't know if that makes it easier or harder, but he delivered me. That's magnificent. (laughs) But uh, in elementary school, a kid told me my dad killed babies for a living, and I didn't understand And so I asked my dad, you know, what were they talking about? And my parents explained to me what an abortion was. And I was kind of, you know, surprised because I always thought he had delivered babies and it didn't really connect. And I was kind of against it. 
until he took me to the clinics in Laredo and explained to me, like, this is, you know, healthcare that women need and have a hard time accessing. And, you know, this is really important. And from then on, I knew I wanted to do something. He took me to see a C-section shortly after that, and I knew I didn't want to be a doctor at all because it was gross. Um, And I don't know. I ended up here. (laughs) So... You've, you've worked on so many aspects of reproductive justice, um, and a lot before, did you always know you were going to do the legal part, or were you, when you were working before you got your JD, were you finding out where your fit in all of it was, or how did that, how did you end up going, saying, I, I need to, I need to go to law? Sure. Um, I was working at the ACLU in the development department, and I'd gone to a brown bag lunch with Louise Melling. Um, who at the time was the director of the Reproductive Freedom Project. And she talked about how they use the laws to secure rights and how not only through litigation they can protect our rights and secure them, but also through policy work and creating the laws. And I just, I was hooked after that. So um, I applied to law school and decided to go to law school. That, I'm so glad you did. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I know that a lot of people, well, a lot of people, I say, some of my friends, we talk about policy and, and we uh, lament the model legislation that uh, groups like, well, I don't know that Operation Rescue writes that stuff anymore, but anti-choice groups are writing and we see the same language uh, in lots of state legislatures, anti-choice bills that are being filed, whether that's these 20-week bans or the what we've got now, this dis- dismemberment abortion ban or any, you name it. They're, they seem to be pretty um, copy and paste and we think that there's there's not enough of that happening on our side. There's not enough great model legislation it's getting, well, maybe it's getting filed and we just don't see it. I don't think so. I think that we need to see more of it, uh, more, more positive, proactive um, policies that are outcome-based. And, right. yeah, so I'm, it pleases me that Public Leadership Institute has put together some, um, some basis for, uh, for model legislation for Reproductive justice. Can you so the the book that you co-edited, the uh, playbook for abortion rights? Can you tell me about like your favorite your favorite um, prospective bills, or what's what's the one that you are most proud of, or uh, felt like you guys really knocked it out of the park with that one? Sure. Um, first, let me give you a little bit of background. Oh about yeah, the book. please. Um, I think that might be helpful. But we we also noticed that Americans United for Life had been publishing this book of model legislation um, that people have been using in the states for almost a decade, I think, if not more. And they were introducing, the states were introducing the same bill year after year after year. And initially, you know, it was met with, you know, sometimes disbelief. They were kind of ridiculous. um, But eventually they started to pass. And when I was working at the state level, I noticed that there weren't, there wasn't that kind of resource available to me. Um, you know, most state organizations and state adv- advocacy groups are very underfunded, have very little staff, and you don't have a lot of time to to do everything. So we thought that this resource would be helpful. And um, so I 
kind of stumbled onto this position where we were actually gathering a lot of the model legislation that's already out there, written by, you know, great national organizations or that have been introduced in other states but might not have been seen, you know, in different states. So we gathered, um, we talked to a bunch of national organizations, state advocacy groups, state legislators, and just kind of picked their brains about the best legislation they'd seen out there. So we put together 29 bills, um, 27 proactive policies and two resolutions, and kind of divided it up into categories. Um, the first is expanding access to abortion. So that includes like expanding coverage, like the East, Each Woman Act, or expanding providers. So that would include um, advanced practice clinicians, which include you know nurse practitioners, um, certified nurse midwives, and physician assistants, allowing them to perform medication abortion or aspiration abortion. So that's one of my favorite bills because I think one of the biggest issues with abortion access is that there aren't enough providers. And, I mean, there's a good reason for that. They get attacked and whatnot, but um, that's one of my favorite bills. Another favorite bill that would fall under the harassment category in our book um, is the... So there's kind of an anti-terrorism omnibus bill, but one of the sections is the safe-at-home bill, and that one would provide that um, abortion providers, clinicians, staff members, volunteers, that their information would be anonymous um, in any sort of state or public database. And I think that that's really important because a lot of the harassment that's seen, you know, whether or not it's a provider or a volunteer or a patient. Sorry. Um, so that's another one of my favorite bills. Um, the reason that's one of my favorite bills is when I was growing up, my dad received a lot of harassment and wore a Kevlar vest to work. And, you know, we lived in gated communities. And and I think that's something that people forget, that doctors have families. And, you know, they are doing this because they love the work and and they, you know, want to help women and help ac- give access for health care, but they get harassed. So that's another one of my favorite bills. And one of my last favorite bills is called Truth in Medicine, um, and it talks about the deception that uh, crisis pregnancy centers um, commit when talking to people that come seeking their help, but it links it to public funding, so you don't have any First Amendment issues. So it's basically like if you receive public funding, you can't tell these lies about abortion services or abortion health care. So, seems pretty basic. Yeah, it seems pretty basic, but you'd be so surprised at how much funding these organizations receive, especially in Texas. Right, and they're not even, I don't know of one state where they're regulated to the extent of a medical clinic or one state where they abide by HIPAA regulation or, I mean, are there... Are there any crisis pregnancy centers in the United States that abide by any regulations that a clinic or medical office would? Not to the same extent that an abortion clinic would. And some oh, just yeah. kind of get the the medical personnel to fulfill that requirement, and then they don't really abide by anything else. So, yeah, it's a big problem. I want to ask a question about um, the, the expanding access. Um, it seems like we're seeing a lot of legislation, especially in the last few years, um, that restrict the circumstances in which abortion providers can do their thing. Um, I know Texas had that big bill where, where you know all the all the facilities had to be surgical centers. Um, they had to live up to certain codes. And in in reality, it is my understanding that most abortions are outpatient procedure doesn't doesn't seem to be the right word. Why is it that we can have people who are not MDs injecting us full of things like Botox 
Um, but we can't have people that are equipped and trained to do to, to perform an abortion. What, what, are, what are kind of the circumstances there in terms of who's legally allowed to practice that sort of medicine? Well, so most states, well, no, a lot of states have physician-only requirements mm-hmm. that are specific to abortion and not any other medical procedure. So that's what where um, that restriction comes from. It's not medically based. It's not based on any sort of research. Um, for example, California allows nurse practitioners to perform aspiration abortion and medication abortion. They've done studies where they show that it's just as safe as a doctor um, when a doctor performs it. But a lot of the laws around the country have physician-only requirements. So that's where that comes in. And this bill that I that I love would combat that bill, would either take away the physician-only requirement like they've done in some other states or would just allow it to happen. You know, um, And one of the things I like about this bill is it talks about just how safe abortion is. I, don't, I think that the reason there are these laws in place is because there's some sort of misconception that abortion is not safe, that abortion is, you know, a dangerous thing, that medication abortion is dangerous, when in fact, medication abortion has been proven to be safer than Tylenol, Viagra. Um, It's like 99.9% or something safer. The statistic's wrong. It's over 99%, but I don't remember what the decimal point is. And then aspiration abortion is about 99% safe. So, I mean, I feel like the reason for these laws is there's a huge misconception, and I think the reason I love this bill so much is even though it won't pass, you can use it as a platform to teach people how safe abortion is because people just don't know. They really don't. There's really a misconception. Uh, even despite the fact that one in three women get an abortion, it's not you don't see one in three women falling out, you know? They're, they're still with us. It's safe. They've, they've uh, managed to survive. Um, one of the things that's interesting, well, I just want to point out for listeners, aspiration abortion would be um, usually for like a first trimester, uh, an earlier uh, abortion. So not the, doesn't even, there's not even, you can't have dismember, it's not a, a DNA or something like that. This is um, earlier than that. So uh, that's what she's talking about. Sorry, I slip into <laughs> lingo sometimes. That's okay. I mean, my listeners are all smart and good looking, but I don't so know if they Yeah, so well informed. I don't know if they've all been into the clinic lately. So, um, which they have, they could have. That's fine too. Um, I, I'm I'm with you guys, literally, figuratively. I'm there. Um, the the other thing you mentioned was the. Uh, when you were talking about privileges, about doctor privileges, about allowing nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, physicians assistants to perform these procedures, um, it, it brought to mind some pieces of the ACA. Isn't that uh, like letting medical providers perform to the highest level of their licensing is part of the solution to reducing healthcare costs? In, in many states, and I, I don't know, I can't remember if it's codified in the ACA or if it's just something that FQHCs and other clinics have taken on to reduce the overall cost of healthcare because it's a best practice to have people do uh, whatever it is, the, 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 the most they can do with their licensing. Um, so it seems like that's, that's a, a solution that should help in all kinds of ways. It, it seems pretty archaic to me to, to force doctors to do things that clinicians other clinicians can can do or can be doing it's it's kind of rude 
Right. And in a lot of states, the, the nurse practitioners or the physician assistants or the certified midwives already have privileges or are allowed to do almost any kind of, you know, other procedure except abortion because of that physician-only requirement. So in a lot of states, they provide reproductive health care. They provide, you know, other minor um, procedures, mm-hmm. but they can't provide abortion. And that's we're trying to advocate for changing those laws as well. Oh, yeah. Oh. There's so much that needs some changing. I just want to remind listeners, you're tuned in to Issues for Your Tissues. My guest today is Amy Arambide. She is at the uh, Public Leadership Institute. You can find them at publicleadershipinstitute.org. She is uh, the program manager and reproductive rights policy specialist. So she's been everywhere uh, fighting for reproductive justice, or I say working very diligently for reproductive justice um, throughout her career. And, um, I think that the work that you're doing is, is so important. And, um, I don't know if enough people know about it. So if you are interested in this sort of thing, I encourage you to take a look at the website, Public Leadership Institute, because it's not just, uh, reproductive justice, justice that they're working on. There's, there are a lot of things that are going on over there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you and your coworkers are up to on a day to day? Sure. So I, I mainly focus on reproductive rights and justice. So, um, But my other coworkers work on education rights, economic justice, racial justice. Um, the idea is to just provide the tools to legislators to be able to introduce and enact these, these bills and these proactive measures across the country. Because, I mean, I think we all know that, well, the fights were at the state level. Now they're at the federal level, too. But for the most part, a lot of the rights get chipped away at the states. So we want to give our legislators the tools to be able to to prevent that. So in working, when you mentioned state legislatures, uh, um, and I know you work among many states with with a, in your job, um, but you're are you following things going on in the Texas legislature? Are you tracking certain bills? Sure. So I'm I'm tracking some. Um, I'm tracking all the bad bills in the Texas legislature. <laughs> Boy, is that um, a full-time job or what? <laughs> and there's a lot of them. Um, but I'm happy to say that I think that, that there will be some proactive bills coming soon. And I think that I also want to give a shout-out to all the Texas advocates because, for example, last week they introduced the abortionist health care resolution at the Austin City level, and it passed. Um, mm-hmm. And at the Travis County level, it passed as well. And I think that um, that's... One of my favorite things that I've been doing is helping coordinate. Um, so far, we've got 18 states and five localities that are introducing either the abortionist health care resolution or some sort of proactive measure. And the idea behind it is to just say in this political climate, like, we're not going to take it lying down. We're going to fight for our rights, and we're going to declare that abortion is health care. Um, I think some people might say that a resolution doesn't do a lot because um, in terms of policy-wise, but I think it's important to note that it attacks the stigma surrounding the word abortion. You'd be surprised how much pushback we get about just using the word abortion. Um, and so I just the, the Texas advocates are used to fighting the good fight. You know, they're used to an onslaught of anti-abortion legislation. And, um, and they're, you know, bold and brave. And they passed two resolutions in one week. And so it's pretty amazing. Um, but yes, I am following state legislation as well. Uh, while I find it all, the anti-choice stuff, all 
disconcerting at best and uh, heinous and insulting. Um, a little terrifying. A little, a little terrifying. Uh, are there a couple that you they are? Are you testifying that you're planning? Like, if this gets any further, I'm I'm up there. Um, I haven't gotten that far yet, but I'm sure I will. Um, yeah, probably. I don't know which specifically. Yet, right. But. I'm trying to narrow it down. Like if I'm <laughs> going to take time off, off work or get some, some PTO to go over to the Capitol and testify, I'm going to have to do it judiciously because otherwise it really is a full-time job. Since yeah. the 2010 elections, state politicians have passed more than 338 restrictions on abortion and 50 in 2016 alone. I wonder how many laws have been passed that pertain to the male reproductive system. I I think penises are law free. Anybody, anybody got any stats on that? I'd love to see that. Pretty sure it's zero. (laughs) I think you're right. I I think you are right. So yeah. Uh, That was your happy stat for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it reminded me of a, that reminds me of the picture that we saw last week. I I hate to, you know, I don't want to derail this into Trump, but the global gla- the global <laughs> gag rule photo where he's signing an executive order, and there's his he's got his flock of of middle aged white men behind him who this this will never affect and who are doing this. They're basically they didn't show you the bottom part of there, but they're all standing on women's backs. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what they're doing figuratively, um, scoring political points. Was that a New Yorker cartoon or something? No, I'm just imagining. That was just my imagination when I saw the picture. They're all, you know, standing on ladies. Oh, gosh. Well, and I think out of the 17 anti-abortion bills in Texas, 14 were introduced by men. So, I mean, it's it's always been the that white men regulating right. our bodies. Right. It, it really is about controlling or, or trying to control and reducing bodily autonomy, um, which makes me think of the strictest um, interpretation of the Constitution where, you know, some people were three-fifths of a person or some people did not have the right to vote. And we are, you know, the three of us as not being, you know, white male landowners would not have had that right in the beginning of the United States. Um, Which makes me think of our recent nominee news. We have... um, uh, Gorsuch, who's been uh, nominated to the Supreme Court, and he's been a, a friend of corporate personhood, but I'm, I don't know that he's a friend of uh, women personhood <laughs> or of nope. trans personhood. Or, and when I say I don't know, I mean he is not. Um, and I wonder, as a legal professional, uh, we get to call on you as a legal comp- a professional to uh, give us your take on the nomination, was he in like what you thought would be the? Um, was he who you thought Trump would pick? Um, I think Trump was. I thought Trump was going to pick someone like him, who is he's a well qualified. You know, he's got the credentials. He's clerked for the right people. He's consistent with the values that Trump, you know, talked about during his campaign. So I thought it would be someone like him. Um, and I'm a little afraid going forward because I feel that if they were to, you know, filibuster his his nomination that we could be put at risk later on if we needed to nominate another justice, you know, they might try to get rid of the the filibuster. And so I feel like I don't know, 
I don't know what they should do, what the Democrats should do. Or I, I don't know. Can I be partisan? You can be partisan. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. um, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm a little nervous because either way, it doesn't seem good. Either way, we're stuck with a justice who believes that, you know, that um, that organizations are have religious rights and that women don't have rights. <laughs> and yeah, that's surprising. I, yeah. Or well, not what it's surprising. worth, I became a, I signed up to be an organ donor today and I've decided that if if Notorious RBG needs like a kidney or a lung or screw it, a heart, I, I'll take one for the team. Yeah. Because I mean, I feel like, I mean, Roe is safe-ish, you know, it's pretty safe considering we had five votes for the whole women's health decision um, and that none of those justices have been compromised or have retired. And, you know, we just have to hope that they, that they don't retire in the next four years. Um, That's pretty... That's a tall order. (laughs) It's also, and and, and we talk about this pretty frequently on this show, that Roe being safe or unsafe is is not really the question anymore because the way that people are attacking it is is, is chipping away at it piece by piece. Like, they'll never go after Roe, you know... that way they'll they'll go after it in in smaller cases in in weird ways in you know like trying to outflank us almost they're, you know they're coming at it from weird perspectives different perspectives and taking you know a little bit here and a little bit there um so they'll never actually say no 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 women don't have this right but they will say they'll limit the right they they, they limit it and then it becomes it becomes smaller and smaller and less available and less accessible and and less socially acceptable you know there's oh, yeah. i mean cuz so much of this is is about you know shaming women um, for making choices, which sometimes aren't even really choices for having sex. Yeah, it's it's shame. Seems like just applying shame for women having sex, like that Tinderholt bill. He he came oh. out he came out afterward. Uh, and if you guys, I know you all follow and track all the legislation religiously, uh, and that's the only thing you do religiously. But <laughs> there there's a, that Tinderholt bill was the all right ban on abortion in the state of Texas. So. Um, it's, it's so something like, so women could act more responsibly or something. Yes. That was what he said. As as if we do this to ourselves. Yeah. Like I can't. Yeah. Like it takes two guys. We don't do this to ourselves because men are totally responsible about sex. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the other thing that drives me crazy about Texas legislation, anti-abortion legislation is that. We spend so much money defending it in the court system. You know, they enacted the fetal remains bill at at the dishes level when it had already been struck down in Indiana. Um, I mean, I think they could spend upwards of $4.5 million on legal fees for the whole women's health case. And then they're turning right around and enacting or introducing and trying to enact more anti-abortion regulations that they know are unconstitutional. And we're just paying for it with our taxpayer money. We are literally paying for it. And, you know, we're paying for it not just with our cash, uh, but with our time. I wonder, sometimes I wonder, what could all these women, all these smart, Mm -hmm. wonderful women be doing to forward humanity if we didn't have to be worrying about dudes trying to remove our bodily autonomy and force control of our flesh? It it, like, this is, this is not just setting ladies back, it's setting everyone back. Mm -hmm. This is... The, the manpower, the woman power, the people power that goes into defending rights, if they would just let people have rights, we could all be curing cancer. Right, <laughs> or focusing on, like, child welfare in Or Texas, hunger. Or, or getting us to Mars. Yeah, Mars <laughs> or education. Yeah, we need... We, 
we could be doing better things with our time than trying to decide um, what to tell women to do or what mm. to force them to do legally or what to legally coerce them to do. Well, uh, we've been having this fight now for how many centuries? Forever. It's, it's just old hat. It's old habit now. <laughs> uh, so I just want to remind listeners, you're tuned into Issues for Your Tissues. We are talking about legislation and uh, progressive and not-so-progressive policies and filings with Amy Arambide of the Public Leadership Institute and Fun Texas Choice. I got can't forget that. Um, we are going to take a quick break and be right back with more discussion about everything you want to know and that you really don't want to know. So <laughs> stay tuned to Co-op. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I'm your host, Katie Vitale. With me in the studio, Sonia Van Meter. She is our um, political political powerhouse. We can, we'll can <laughs> say that. You, you're both powerhouses. I kind of go with consultant, but I'll take powerhouse. <laughs> okay, we're, we'll use them both interchangeably over the next 30 minutes while we go through uh, some more policy and current events with Amy Arambide of Public, Public Leadership Institute and Fund Texas Choice. Amy, we haven't talked too much about Fund Texas Choice uh, since you sat down. Uh, could you tell listeners a little bit about that? They, already, they know about, they have a good idea about um, abortion funds, but I know that they're all unique. So please share. Sure. So Fund Texas Choice was um, established in response to HB2, which was the legislation in 2013 that created the ambulatory surgical center requirements um, and the admitting privileges, which closed about 50% of the clinics in the state. Um, And despite the whole women's health ruling last summer, um, which declared those laws unconstitutional, the clinics haven't opened back up yet. And the result was that women and individuals seeking abortion have to travel further um, to get their abortions from Texas. And so we provide the funds to travel and hotel accommodations for people seeking abortions that have to travel. So, for example, last year we spent $150,000 on 335 trips. Um, and it's the, I don't know, the, the need is increasing. It's not decreasing. Um, and because of the laws and the clinic closures, the wait times have been extended. People are further along in their pregnancies. Therefore, they have to leave the state. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's an amazing organization, and we have an amazing board and a an operations manager who just do great work. So people can find Fund Texas Choice on the internet, right? What's that website? Yes, www.fundtexaschoice.org. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I think it's Fun Texas Choice, probably. <laughs> I think so, too. So uh, we're, we're talking with Amy about legislation uh, to, to help women. Um, a lot of the, legisl- the anti-choice legislation that we see uh, is, is filed and is... <laughs> I don't even know what the word to use. Is, is advocated for by anti-choice folks... In, in under the guise of health and safety. And I'm tired of the lies, but they're going to continue to say health and safety. Well, now they've added a new one on their dignity, mm-hmm. right? Dig, dignity of a fetus. They don't care about you once you're born or if you're in a, a school that needs um, <clears throat> a facility. Uh, anyhow, anyhow uh, let's not get into education because that's going to be a whole nother show. Um, 
how, how, how can we begin to address not just abortion, but the, um, uh, you know, come to fix the, the state of women's health care in, in Texas and in the other states that, that you're helping out? Because I know that a lot of them have been cutting budgets for family planning or uh, not everyone has signed up or had signed up. Not all states had signed up for the Obamacare extension or expansion of Medicaid. Uh, and women aren't getting their um, their annual visits or preventive care that's necessary to be healthy. And so more of them have these unintended pregnancies. Like you said, the demand is going up, not just at Fund Texas Choice, but at other um, abortion funds. And then we see things like the bad outcomes afterward, maternal health, uh, worsening maternal mortality, doubling in just a few years. Um, we, we, talk about, we talk a lot about abortion specifically, uh, but just in going through here in, in the book, uh, A Playbook for Abortion Rights, there are a lot of things that are there to protect pregnant women um, and to, I think the one I was looking at, Pregnant, women, Pregnant Women's Dignity Act, um, and other, there was another one too about, anyhow, about the word dignity, it just, it really, it makes my flesh crawl. Like, yeah, where, they're Where's the dignity it. for the poor women that have to, you know, endure the, the, the brunt of these, of these uh, laws? Like, I, I well, and I think. So not to plug my playbook, but I kind of love that book. I'm but kind of in love with it already. One of the things I like about it is there's a whole section on just kind of calling out the opposition. So there's bills in there that don't necessarily address abortion, but the idea behind them is to use them as tools to attack the opposition. So when they say something like, you know, um, protect or the dignity of the unborn, or I can't even remember the title of that, that bill, then you introduce... I can't remember the title of our bill either, but it talks about how you need to have adoption options for everyone. You need to have um, pre-K. You need to have um, maternal health care. You need to have... So the idea behind it is you don't necessarily have to introduce the bill to create the policies, although that's fantastic, you know, if we had pre-K for all and um, health care for all. But the idea is to say these anti-abortion people are saying that they care about the dignity of the unborn, but they're not helping any of these children once they're born. So let's force them to add them on as amendments. Like, why don't you also fund pre-K? And why don't you fund health care? And so I think that the idea behind this book is using policy as a political tool to like call the opposition out on what they're purporting to do and what they're actually doing and to to teach the public about that and is this book available for public consumption it is it's online so you can have a whole online version and um you could just write to me um my email is a arambide at publicleadershipinstitute.org and i can send you a a hard copy that's fantastic but yeah boy i've got some good reading ahead of me (laughs) it really is uh because if we were to address the things that they really claim that they care about, then we could reduce or improve health care, health outcomes for women while reducing uh, unintended pregnancy rates and, uh, of course, maternal mortality. Um, we, and one of the shining stars of, of the bills that have been filed so far in the Texas legislature is uh, one of Donna Howard's that 
uh, proposes a pilot program for long-acting reversible contraception for teens to see about measuring the success of a reduction of um, un- of pregnancy rate and of abortion, right? Or I think it's those two things. Anyhow, I feel like these these are all connected, and it's hard. It seems really hard for those guys uh, who are filing the the crappy bills. You know, people like Tinderholt uh, to to make the connection between access to health care and um, unintended pregnancy and then elective abortion. So it's it seems like a, a clear line, there's a clear progression there of, of um, lack of access to basic health care leading to need for other interventions or for, um, for abortion. So it, it seems... Uh, it seems like it's a, it's a really good play to call them out on, on that lack of empathy or lack of uh, dignity protection for people who exist. Well, not only that, but I think that people are unaware that like the majority of the Americans are on the side of keeping abortion accessible. And you know I think it's something like 70% of people don't want Roe v. Wade overturned. Um, and I think that there's just so much stigma attached to abortion in and of itself that people can't get past that. So I think that they need to get past that because, because I mean, people are on their side. It's health care. You know, it's, I don't know, it's been around forever. It's something that people will always need access to. So it's, you know, it's a strange thing. You know, I am, I am a staunch pro-choice advocate and will be until the day I die for all the, you know, the innumerable reasons that we discuss on this show. Um, but I, I have a lot of compassion for the people that are just as staunchly pro-life. I understand their perspective. I really do. Um, my, my concern for the issue, though, comes when, when you talk about the nuance of this, because it's not a, it's not a black and white um, situation. And that's part of the reason that I am so rapidly pro-choice as I am, because, you know, there, there are plenty of circumstances where I personally would not choose to have an abortion, but I don't know all the myriad circumstances in which a woman may need an abortion, and I'm not going to be the one to tell her, you know, what to do. Um, and that's you know, part of why I love the whole choice notion is because it's a choice. No one's going to tell you. You get to do it. You get to not do it. You get to, you know, consider all the available options to you. Um, and at the end of the day, I still appreciate where the hardcore anti-choice people are coming from. I wish, and I, and I think that, you know, a book like, you know, yours, Amy, thank you so much for putting that together. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to reading it. I feel like a book like this is probably going to be chock full of language that will be useful in, in trying to, to, if not convince people that they need to reassess their, their position, at least convince them that it's a more complicated issue. Than, than a lot of people on the other side of the aisle think. Well, and there's a communications chapter that talks a little bit about how communicating about abortion. There was a National Institute for Reproductive Health study um, that came out last year that said, if you talk to people ab- about abortion from after the point in which the person has made the decision, so you're not talking about whether to have an abortion or not to have an abortion. It's a person has decided to have an abortion. How do you want that experience to be? Do you want them to encounter protesters? Do you want them to be in a place where they have to see an ultrasound even if they don't want to? Do you want them to have to be read, you know, medical inaccuracies if they don't want to, you know? So it's not about 
asking people what their choice should be. It's about how you want their experience to be after they've made that choice. And even anti-abortion or anti-abortion people can see that side sometimes. I don't, I, I wouldn't say it's always effective, but I would say that this is a great way to, to form the communications around abortion that I think isn't being utilized enough. So I think, yeah, I, I think, think you're, you're right. right. And that's very well said. Um, one of the things that, that it bothers well I'm, I, while I love hearing that the majority of Americans are supportive of abortion access I'm still a, a little uh, hesitant to to throw that around you know we ha- could have a situation where that would change or in the past it had changed but we still need those rights and you end up with some what are the, the, the dreaded tyranny of the majority um, as we had previously uh, and I, I can, like you said, um, Sonia, respect the where they're coming from when they're anti-choice. But I think the place to do it isn't in if you want to if you want to convince women not to have abortions. It would be by by making sure that they have access to health care, by making sure they have access to sex education, by making sure they have all those social services and things that they need. And then even if they want to get even more deep into it ministering to them, whatever they want to do. But the the state house is not, I don't think that's a place to have a respectful discussion of somebody's bodily autonomy. I think that, that that's the wrong, it's the wrong venue. That's, they need to just keep it outside of the state house and let law be law and separate church and state, which is getting more and more difficult these days, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's kind of terrifying how difficult it's getting. Right. So we have... I'm not even going to touch on the executive orders or a religious <laughs> test for entry, which are totally unconstitutional, and all the listeners know that. Um, but this whole idea of, of dignity for fetal tissue or embryonic tissue, but only some of it, only if it's in a hospital, right? In the state of Texas, the fetal funeral uh, regulation doesn't, um, doesn't apply to home miscarriages. So uh, interestingly enough, th- those fetal tissues don't need the same dignity that, that fetal tissues in hospitals do. I, I don't understand. It's a little bit uh, asinine to think that, that this is dignity, but this is not dignity. And anyhow, that's against a lot of people's religious beliefs to have a funeral, to have any kind of uh, personhood status put on fetal tissue. And, and personhood has been something that, that has been creeping up in many different ugly ways in the past year, especially since filing in Texas. But um, what, what, what do you suggest to listeners when, when they're evaluating whether or not to, um, or how, uh, how to feel about legislation or policy? Are there um, sources on the Public Leadership Institute's website for them to help to understand what some of these policies would mean if if enacted or or how can they how can they discern when when to be really upset or when to be really worried so i think the guttmacher institute probably has good resources kind of determining which anti-abortion policies um we should be worried about and what you know what they actually do um the Guttmacher Institute or the Center for Reproductive Rights, who um, 
an organization that litigates a lot of the anti-abortion laws. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that I think that it's just. I feel like the majority of people know that the people enacting these laws don't actually want dignity for fetal tissue. They know that they're just using that as like a... The stepping stone to the next horrifying and atrocious law. Right, and trying to appeal to people's heartstrings or whatever it is, their emotions, humanize the tissue. I'm not sure what they're trying to accomplish, but I I don't think that many people believe it's actually for the dignity. Um, I think that they tried using uh, using the platform that they're doing it for the safety and health and welfare of women, and that got struck down at the Supreme Court last year, and people kind of saw through that. So I think they're just trying different strategies. And I think the fact that the courts are not upholding these laws and they're striking them down demonstrates that they're not being fooled either. Um, I think we just have to keep fighting, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know when it's ever going to end, but, but yeah. Yeah, it's gotten... It seems that no matter how hard we fight or how well we organize, it seems to get worse and worse, and I... I Part of me think this, thinks that that's in a reaction to the work that we're doing, to the the, I, yeah, to any progress. There's going to be, I, I guess, mm-hmm. the the equal and opposite <laughs> uh, reactions. <laughs> yes, so they're gonna they're gonna push back even harder. And that just in the past ten years, just in the past two years, what do you say since 2010? Mm-hmm. Over 300 bills. Yeah. It's a lot of bills. Well, and if you look at the counter to that, there haven't been that many proactive bills introduced, even though... I'm I'm so glad to have have you on because I was not even familiar with the concept of a proactive pro-choice bill. You know, we we on the on the left and on the side of choice are so used to being on the defensive that, honest to God, when I met you and you first started talking to me about this, it was like a light suddenly went on. Like, why? Why am I always in the defensive posture? Why? Why? Why are we not on the offensive? Why are we not trying to to take a more proactive? Uh, approach to this. And it, it's a huge relief to me to know that there are organizations like you out there doing that very thing. Well, and I think that there have been organizations doing it at the storyteller level, like, you know, all the different, like the Abortion Diary Project or the One in Three campaign that are doing it at the storyteller level. But I think in terms of policy, we don't even realize how stigmatizing the policy is written. So like abortion is replaced with termination of pregnancy or Oh, Representative Farrar, one of my one of my heroes in the state house, um, she filed some bills and in them she changed uh or she corrected, I should say, not changed, corrected every mention of unborn baby oh. to, to to fetal or embryonic tissue. So she just you can and just watching it is fun to see it struck through struck out every yes, time. Struck out at a girl. Unborn baby and then fetal or embryonic it's tissue. Because it really tiny is. little mm-hmm. they're like it's almost like microaggressions of mm-hmm. yes. you know, changing our opinions about how we talk about abortion. And I think, you know, it worked with the anti abortion movement with partial birth abortion because that doesn't even exist. That's mm-hmm. not a medical term, you know, and it's been working even now, like when we've been trying to get this abortionist healthcare resolution um, introduced places, people have pushed back and they don't want to use the word abortion. And these are supporters, people on our side, but they're too afraid to use that word. And so I think that one of the reasons I love the idea of proactive policy is you're changing those minds, even if it's subliminal or, you know, unconsciously they're changing to be more out loud about abortion. I think that you have to be out loud about abortion to change the, to change the narrative, to change the policies, to change everything. Um, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the ne- neutrality in in the face of this onslaught of um, of bills, and, and not just bills, but the onslaught of uh, stigma uh, and of a growing and more um, vitriolic type stigma, that's you, you can't be neutral. You have to be, like I said, be loud about it. Well, it it worked for the opposition. Like, it really did. They talked about pain and they talked, you know, things that we were like, medical evidence does not support what you're talking about, but yet people believe it. So, yeah, they have a whole other science. They're in a whole other reality in some other it's far al- away it's place. Alternate, alternative facts. Uh, you're right. You're right. Alternative facts. And the whole the alternative science is really a thing, too, for them. Uh, I just, you know, I wanted to remind listeners that you're tuned into Issues for Your Tissues on Co-op Radio. It's Destination Radio. You're here because you want to know what's going on. And you want to hear from Amy. Amy Arambide from Public Leadership Institute and Fund Texas Choice is here talking to us about legislation, about specific legislation, about legislation in general, and about the work that she's been doing for the better part of her life uh, for um, progressive issues, mostly reproductive justice. So, Amy, what is what, what would be the one thing that you would want to leave listeners knowing, um, I think, being loud about abortion is one thing, but if there's if there's another one thing, a second one thing, what would you want them to know about um, the future of progressive legislation? Um, I like think- this, like, do we have, this is the 2016 edition. Are we going to see something even bolder or... <laughs> like uh, I don't know if I have the time for Boulder anytime soon, but you'll be seeing some more supporting materials to help uh, legislators introduce that legislation. But I think that I think that what we're seeing now as a result of the current political climate is that people are ready to go bold. You know, we saw millions marching in the march a couple weeks ago, and as a result of that, you know, everyone's asking, "What do I do next? How do I, you know, how do I?" interact? How do I engage? How do I advocate for the things that I, you know, want to see in my country and my, my locality? So I think that we're going to see proactive legislation. And I think it might take a couple introductions before things pass and we solidify our rights. But I think, I think that people are fed up. We're out loud. We're not going anywhere and we're going to actually change the policy. If, uh, if, it's, if this is any indication, I know that, you know, senators and, and Congress people left and right are being flooded with phone calls um, about a range of issues. Um, certainly, I think the front runners are, are cabinet picks right now, but I'm, I'm hearing a lot of noise about people calling and speaking to their representatives, finding out who their representatives are, first off, and then finding out, you know, how to contact them. I feel like, um, you know, the gauntlet has been thrown down, but American women are equal to the task. Um, and I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the, by the sort of galvanizing of the, of the population. You know, these people that before thought a vote is enough. And now all of a sudden it's not enough anymore. They're, they're becoming, like you said, more vocal. Um, I also would say that I'm noticing more of a unification and intersecting of issues. Mm. For example, like I feel like the, the, the Muslim day at the Capitol last year didn't like get very many people. And now people that aren't Muslim, you know, all people are coming out Mm -hmm. to support everyone about these common values that we all have. We're not just sticking to our lane in our own issue area, but we're all, we're just uniting more Mm -hmm. intersectional about it. And I think that's also going to make, make waves and actually change things. I I sure hope so. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Right. 
So we actually get to like leave it on a good note tonight. Yeah, man. Yeah, this power is of protest. That's right. This is this is what we have the capability of doing. You guys is changing, changing things for the better. This is how we're going to um, put finally put this this junk to rest and get on with curing cancer. Right? We're gonna we're gonna solve this <laughs> and getting to Mars. And going to Mars. Well, it's the whole advancement of science, right? <laughs> we need the space program. We need the, the sea program. We need to explore uh, lots of other things. We need to get back to facts, like actual facts, <laughs> not the alternative ones. Mm-hmm. Actual science mm-hmm. and oh, actual, actual outcomes. So thank you so much for joining me tonight, Amy. And thank you, Sonia, thank you. as always. It was my pleasure. Okay. Well, you guys have a good night and uh, tune in next week. We're going to be talking about V-Day and 1 billion rising. So it's going to be a lot of fun. 